Welcome to the O'Reilly Security Podcast. I'm your host, Courtney Nash. In this episode, I chat with Stephen Shorrock, a human factors and safety science specialist. We discuss the dangers of blaming human error for, well, everything, studying success along with failure, and how humans are critical to making our systems resilient. Enjoy the show. Well, thank you for joining me, Stephen. I'm so glad to have you on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me, Courtney. It's a pleasure. So to set the context of what we're going to be talking about today, uh, towards the end of last year, 2016, um, the very end of October, the news broke of this um, rather large data breach of of the Australian Red Cross. And there was one particular refrain that was repeated uh, from folks investigating the breach and from everybody reporting on it, that the main cause of this breach was human error. Um, And this is a common refrain in in, uh, breaches in in the security world. And so I wanted to invite you, as somebody who I've known from other other uh, O'Reilly conferences and other domains, because this framing of the problem as being related to human error irks me uh, for many reasons. Um, some of them you know, related to my background in cognitive science, which is, I think, where our interests converge. So mm-hmm. what I was hoping you could do is um, maybe discuss a bit about your, you know, what your perspectives are on people focusing on human error in these kinds of contexts um, and a little background on on basically why I invited you here <laughs> to talk to me today. Right. Well, human error has been a, a factor in my industry in a similar way for decades. So for several decades now, human error has been blamed as the cause or the primary cause of somewhere between 70 to 90% of aircraft accidents. But when you look at that, that really doesn't explain anything at all. And it doesn't even make sense because any system is comprised of a number of different uh, components. Some of those are human. So we have people, of course, in various positions and roles. Other components are technical. Um, so we have, for instance, aeroplanes and computer systems and so on. Um, other other parts of the system are, let's say, procedural. So we have various rules and procedures. And then we have lots of soft aspects, organizational aspects and so on. So all socio-technical systems are made up of a whole variety of components. We can never, in a complex system, usually isolate one of those components as being the cause. Um, and it doesn't help us in terms of uh, stopping that from happening again either. So it sounds like in the InfoSec world, you're suffering what we've suffered and more recently realized is uh, is a false explanation. And that is pinning the blame of a complex system um, accident or adverse event on human error. Right. And you mentioned something that I think is the next step that people get to, which is, well, how can we prevent this from happening again, right? How can we get these silly humans from to not make that, the, you know, this mistake again, or, you know, make this preventable in the future, um, which strikes me as if you take your logical, you know, what you've just, you know, described to the logical conclusion, then you sort of have to give up on the notion that you're going to be able to, you know, sort of stop humans from behaving the way they behave, whether you see it as error or not, correct, in these, in the context of these larger systems. Right. I mean, if you want to reduce something, uh, adverse events happening, then blaming on human error and using um, what would seem like logical responses to that, such as reminding people to be careful or reminding people to, um, I don't know, uh, change their password or not to um, operate uh, an aircraft in a certain way. Well, that's going to have limited impact because there's usually very good reasons why people do the things that they do. Um, And 
a concept here that listeners may not have heard of before, but it's quite useful, is called local rationality. What that basically means is that we, as human beings, we do things that are rational to us locally. Locally meaning at that time and in that situation or context. So if you think back to your own uh, your own history, you probably will struggle to find examples of where you've done something that made absolutely no sense to you. That would be quite rare. So what we really need to understand is why people do things that make sense to them at the time. So why do people reuse passwords? Or why do they use slight variations on passwords? Why do they write passwords down, for instance? There are, there are reasons for this, and those systems are, those reasons are, are linked to, uh, to the system itself, so that it's our cognitive system and how it links to the physical uh, computer system. And we need to really work on understanding why people do things that make sense to them at the time. And that will give us some of the clues to help us trying to work out how to prevent them happening in future. And you mentioned this in the context of industry. You're, you've, you know, you've most familiar with and been studying for a while now in, in terms of air flight industry. And you sort of alluded to a more recent realization, I guess I should say, around this notion that human error is, can't be you know, sort of pinned as a singular cause for an accident or an adverse event. Right. What, what led to that realization? Well, we have a long history of using that kind of explanation, partly because I think in the U.S., the way that um, accident investigations and accident statistics are presented at a federal level highlights a primary cause. Mm -hmm. Now, that is a little bit naive because there are not really primary and secondary causes. That's, that's an arbitrary line. But if you have to choose something, then it's tempting for an investigator to choose a cause that is most close in time and space to the accident. Now, that is usually a person who operates some kind of control or does does uh, some kind of action. Now, they are at the end of a long line of a uh, complex web, let's say, of actions and decisions that goes way back to the design of the aircraft, to the uh, design of the operating procedures, to the uh, pressure uh, that's imposed, to the regulations and so on. All of those are quite complicated, and it's very hard to highlight those as a primary cause. And so what we do is we have this bias where we shift our attention to those things that happen most proximal to the outcome. Now, in most cases, there will be a person there. And so it's, it's, it's too tempting to make a primary cause human error. But in fact, we should not even accept the notion of a primary cause, never mind that human error is the primary cause. And this realization, I guess, is, is, um, is more recent, but we still have this necessity or this requirement at the federal level to highlight this primary cause. And that does make it difficult to, um, to understand the complexity of the system. I think also, I mean, there's, and you, you sort of pointed to it, kind of a recency effect or some kind of a bias. Um, as humans, it's really uncomfortable <laughs> to not have a clean answer in response to a situation like that as well, right? So I think there's a degree That's of right. becoming, becoming comfortable with not having a, a quote-unquote root cause or a single you know, cause of a situation. And one of the things that I've noticed you, when you've talked about this before is you talk about something called just culture. And it, that to me has felt like the response I've seen come out of safety, you know, sort of safety science areas uh, outside of possibly like security or other or aspects of technology. So can you talk a little bit about what this notion of just culture is and, and, and that's relationship to, to this problem that we're discussing now? Sure. Well, just culture is the 
really, it's the realization in the end that nobody goes to work to have an accident. Now, that's that's true in a safety sense. Now, if, if somebody does go to work to have an accident, then it becomes a security issue, right? Because <laughs> this is a deliberate. This is now a deliberate breach of system defences, which is quite different to a, a safety event. Now, in a safety context, where we're talking about unwanted events that were in some way accidental, then just culture is the acceptance that people don't go to work to have an accident and they should not be unfairly um, blamed for um, ordinary, uh, let's say, actions or omissions that were the kind of thing that really could happen to anyone in similar circumstances. So it recognizes that, that, that blaming people for their everyday ordinary decisions, even when they go wrong, is unfair. It's not only unfair, it's very counterproductive because once you start blaming people for their actions and decisions at work, then they are unlikely to report them when things go wrong. Uh, we know this through lots of, of experience now in, in, in many different industries. And so just culture is, first of all, not blaming people for their ordinary decisions, even when things go wrong. But on the other side of the coin, it's saying that actually, where people engage in some kind of behavior that is reckless, or let's say it would be accepted by everyone that this was not acceptable, then that does need to be addressed. So an example of that would be driving while drunk, for instance. That's something that's not acceptable. Interesting. And I mean, has this, do you feel like you've seen an impact of this, you know, sort of this idea of just culture on various safety critical industries? Is this barely taking hold? Well, it's in my own industry, I, I work primarily in, um, in aviation uh, and in air traffic control in particular. Now we have regulations which enforce organizations to have just culture policies and to enact those policies, especially around the investigation of incidents. And so organizations will have, very often they'll have a policy and they will have a committee which will look over incidents where there may be some doubt if there is, um, you know, a problem with behavior. But in the vast majority of instances, we find that the problem is actually with the broader system. So it's with, for instance, procedures, or it's with aspects of the technical system. It's with various constraints and other aspects of resources. So even if there's a competency problem, then often that's linked to the system because there, there's a competency system to ensure that people are competent. <laughs> So, oh. so there are only, there are only a few cases where, in fact, you can say this behavior was negligent, and that's where most colleagues would agree that this behavior is negligent, and they wouldn't accept it. And again, the, the examples that anyone can relate to are things like driving whilst under the influence of, of you know, drugs or alcohol, uh, those kinds of things. Yeah, and I think it, I mean, so it's interesting to me the landscape for security is certainly more complex in that um, there's an inherent adversarial nature for the most part. Right. So so there's not just, you know, there's not just an airplane, but there's people who possibly want to take that airplane down, although I guess that also sort of exists in this world. Um, but that's a, it's a different metaphor for security. Um, mm. I'm trying to imagine so what that might, you know, what that might look like. Um, it, it's, it's like, I'm, I'm kind of trying to come back to the cultural environment in which, you know, like you said, in the US isn't the case, but but you've watched You've watched that happen elsewhere, where it, where there was a was a motion a movement towards this sort of just culture notion, and I'm I'm curious what I mean a little bit more maybe if you have insight into was it a, a watershed moment? Were there what was it that allowed 
you know, because I feel like organizations, like you mentioned, the government, you know, high up into the way that people evaluate accidents have this expectation, like breaking down that expectation at a large, you know, political, social level is no small feat. Right. One of the realizations, I think, in aviation of the need for a just culture is uh, prosecution. So different countries have different judicial systems and different regimes for prosecution. But let's imagine now, you as a listener, that you are a, an air traffic controller or a pilot operating in a country where what could be you know, a, a mistake that any controller or pilot could make, you could actually be sent to prison. Mm. It may be that you've not seen something or that you've given an instruction which does not account for something because you were not aware of it or you've forgotten about something. It could be anything, the kind of thing that can happen in a day-to-day life, um, but now you're a, a pilot or controller. Now, if you can be prosecuted and put into prison, deprived of your liberty or, or fined or for that kind of thing, then that's going to be problematic. A, it's not fair, but also, again, as I mentioned earlier, it will prevent people from reporting when things go wrong, and therefore you won't know what's going on in your system. So this fear of prosecution and the reality of prosecution is one reason. But then there are other cases where people do need to be dealt with, where there is, um, you know, gross misconduct, let's say. Um, so just culture recognizes the need for a balance between safety and learning on the one side, and justice and accountability on the other side. So have you seen examples of that in your work or in what you've studied, where has the approach to dealing with misconduct also shifted with just culture? Is that similar to what it was like before? No, no it, it certainly has because, I mean, there are, there are different competing priorities here. If you are, let's say, you know, a, a, an air traffic controller and you fear unjust punishment, then, you know, you may as a group form these self-protective behaviors which are not appropriate. Now, but if you recognize now that actually you're not going to suffer unjust punishment, then you perhaps won't engage in cover-up behaviors or these self-protective group behaviors. And you will, as a group, come to know which behaviors are acceptable and which behaviors are unacceptable. Now, if we look at that in the security field, then, again, people may make uh, all sorts of mistakes and so on. Usually, they'll be linked to context, things like production pressure or, you know, the amount of pressure that you're under. So the concept applies just as well, I think. I mean, you could leave... You could leave, I don't know, a USB key on a train mm -hmm. with a whole bunch of data on it. Now, that's happened, certainly in the UK. But then you've got to ask, well, what is the control system within the organization for handling such data? And why are USB keys allowed, for instance? Is there a policy on it? Maybe there is or maybe there isn't. But you have to look deeper within the system to find those kind of answers. Yeah, yeah. And there's certainly been, you know, I think there's an awareness of that from in a lot of organizations on what people call sort of uh, security awareness programs at, at companies and whatnot. Some are more sophisticated about this than others, but certainly I've started to see a shifting, um, you know, sort of, there's there's multiple victims in this world. Let me put it that way. So just kind of step right. back and, and and go back up a few levels. The notion of victim in, in this context can I can be either an organization that's breached or possibly the person, you know, who did something stupid, that, as it were, quote unquote, sorry, you can't see my air quotes when I say something stupid yeah. on the podcast, but uh, <laughs> that could lead to a problem. And, you know, within the security world, the real issues um, are definitely phishing 
password phishing and sort of social engineering kinds of things um, more than state actors right. and you know malicious uh, giant you know uh, huge bad hacker kind of networks coming after your organization that's that's pretty rare and so I, I do think I don't know if the notion of just culture has extended in those cases but there is the people have I think the analogy is, is is organizations that have started to realize that they can't shame people who fall for phishing, and you know they can't make that uh, they're not they're not going to succeed by making that a a shameful uh, scenario for people. And like you said, people are less likely to report it. There was actually a really great presentation at uh, the security event that we did. It was right around Velocity, where you spoke last year. Um, mm-hmm. A woman uh, named Masha from Salesforce spoke about the the sort of security uh, employee. Uh, education and awareness programs that they do. And she developed some really interesting ways to even make it almost, you know, fun sounds sort of um, grade school, but but she'd found ways to make people aware of these problems in, a, in, in sort of a using games and, and, and sort of positive reinforcement, I guess, rather than negative reinforcement. And they saw an incredible increase in people's willingness to share issues as right. they came up, right? In fact, they, they uh, you know, they, they had a on the security side, they have teams that are called penetration testing teams, or sometimes red teams. They they deliberately attack their own networks um, yeah. and their own people, <laughs> and uh, they just by building that sort of positive mentality around aspects of like phishing and and password problems and that kind of thing. They um, they their red team's jobs got a lot harder. Uh, they had a lot mm-hmm. harder time phishing their own employees and and you know all of those kinds of things. So I thought that was a really great case study that I hadn't even connected to the notion of a just culture uh, until you mentioned that. But it's that reporting piece, like not speaking up if something seems funny, that was exactly what they saw with their programs. Right. And and if you make people feel stupid or inadequate for, you know, clicking a link, let's say, that looks extremely realistic to the average person, then that's not a great way to learn. I mean, that's just that's just a way to make people kind of retreat into their job or role and not want to speak about it. So that's kind of the worst thing that you could possibly do, really. And the approach that you've described sounds uh, much more helpful. Yeah. I think the piece of it that I don't see the way through as easily is then that larger scale, quote unquote, victim shaming, um, you know, where uh, you have an entire organization, essentially, that is now under the microscope, you know, I, I think there's a huge problem. One of the other problems in the industry that people talk about a lot is essentially sharing of information about possible threats and breaches amongst companies and organizations. Um, mm-hmm. People are either afraid to reveal potentially, you know, competitive secrets, but they're also very concerned about revealing, you know, anything publicly. And I feel like until somehow we crack that nut, this is a larger systematic reflection of that problem, but I don't think it's fundamentally any different. And I think it leads to some pretty toxic corporate cultures around this stuff. Yeah, it does. And the media has a lot to do with oh. that, you know, because... This is going to be my next favorite topic with you. <laughs> right. I mean, the, the, the media's narrative is, uh, it has to be a simple one. And it, it's, um, human error is a compelling explanation for the media. It, it makes everything very clear. And you mentioned before about that People, you know, the first thing that people want after an adverse event is is to, to reduce their own anxiety. Yeah. And they don't really, they're not really looking to learn especially from it. They're looking to reduce their anxiety. Now, the way to reduce anxiety is not to present, you know, 
the actual picture, which is often very complicated, is to give a very simple blaming explanation. That reduces your anxiety. You now have someone or something to point to, which is that someone screwed up somewhere in the system, right? Uh, case closed. Right. Now, the problem with that, again, it's not fair, but also more pragmatically, it leaves the problems right there in the system where they were before for the next person to run into. I think that's, I mean, I'm not, I shouldn't expect this, but there's part of me that wishes somebody would sort of look at this in the media and say, we write the same story every single time. You know, why right. are we writing the same story every single time? Like what's going on un underneath the surface of that? Because there's something going on that we're not looking at for writing the same story every single time. I, but I don't hide, hold out high hope for that, unfortunately. That's right. So some journalists are better than others. And, you know, you, you have a headline, right? So the headline has to state something quite kind of uh, simple and shocking. And so you, they, they will get the human error in there. And then there's a lead under the headline, and that has to add just uh, an ounce more of information. And then they've just got a few words. But you, you tend to find that the better stories are the ones that emerge quite some time after events. And a good example of that was the Spanish train crash at Santiago de Compostela. Now, this uh, this happened in, uh, I think it was, was it 2014? I think it was 2014, um, yeah. Right, so the, the immediate stories, of course, all blamed the driver. Mm -hmm. Now, 80 people died in that crash. So the, the immediate stories blamed the driver and blamed his inattentiveness. Now, if that's true, then the answer to that is simpler to change the driver. And the investigation would say the conclusion is that driver error um, and the recommendation is sack the driver. That would at least be logical. We can accept that that's logical, even if it's wrong. Uh, but in fact, the conclusion to the investigation was driver error and you know lack of attention. But the recommendations all focused on the system. Hmm. So there's a mismatch there. Now, when it comes to the media, it takes them a long time to catch up with with, for instance, those investigation reports. So the first story, which emerges immediately after an event, this always focuses on these very superficial elements, and it will usually have that human error label. The second story goes deeper, and that takes a while to come around. And whether journalists have still got the enthusiasm to dig around, you know, some months or years after the event, and people have forgotten about it by then anyway. So we do need to pull up and hold to account journalists when we see these superficial first stories. Yeah, it's a tough one. And I think because there's fewer accidents other than car accidents, you know, which don't get written up. There's fewer of these kinds of train and, and flight accidents, thank goodness, than there are um, security breaches. I'm going to like have to fact check myself on that one. That's just really a gut feeling right now. But <laughs> somebody has probably looked that up. I'm going to have to go look for it. But it does just feel like there's a barrage of these at this point. And, and I think anybody who works in the industry, you know, knows that that's not going to go down, you know, the sort of the attack on people's networks for a variety of reasons um, are, are not going to decrease. And so uh, this the hamster wheel, I'm, I'm waiting for this moment <laughs> when we have, you know, some uh, cultural aha about it that that seems to have happened elsewhere in, in the, you know, other industries that you've seen. And there are fewer you know, also plane crashes and train kinds of accidents, in part because of focus on human factors and safety science that I don't think we have um, in the security industry as much either. Right. I mean, we, we've had decades of uh, experience of both accidents, you know, and success. 
in aviation and in uh, rail travel and in the nuclear power industry and so on. And in all of those industries, there's the human factors is embedded. And I think you're right in your assertion because, I mean, m- major accidents in transportation and power generation and so on, well, you're going to hear about them every time. But when it comes to infosec, um, you know, unwanted events, then you may not hear about them at all. So we just see the tip of the iceberg. Uh, nobody really wants to admit to them, I guess, because there's, as you mentioned earlier, there's a there's a degree of shame about admitting that it's happened. Well, and then there's huge financial implications. There's companies getting class action lawsuits against them. I mean, those are also things that are true potentially of aviation and train accidents. So I don't think that the difference there is that glaring, to be honest. But uh, you mentioned something which was a perfect segue to one of the last things I wanted to talk about, which is we've spent a lot of time doing what people do, which is focusing on the failures, the accidents, the adverse effects. And somewhere in there, you snuck in the word successes. (laughs) And I wanted to talk about that a little bit, about the notion of studying success and not just studying failures, um, which is where I feel like human factors and some of safety science has really shown in my mind as well as trying to actually look at why things go right and understanding how your systems work from that. So maybe you can talk about a bit about that. Right. So th- there's, there's two perspectives on safety. The traditional perspective, which is the one that we've worked with really since the inception of safety science, focuses on things that go wrong. We call that perspective now, we, we tend to call that perspective safety one, mm-hmm. um, as in like a web one. Um, that's at least the term that's been coined by Eric Hornable. Now, taking this approach, we look at the very small number of cases where things have gone usually very badly wrong and there's been an accident. Uh, we analyze them, we take time to decompose them, um, and we tend to see the human as a bit of a liability in the system because of our focus, right, on these accidents. So it's a kind of, you know, deformation professionnelle in French. We, we become, our perspective becomes deformed by the way that we look at things. Now, if you only look at those, then you're kind of assuming that those very rare unwanted events are somehow representative of the the system as a whole. Mm-hmm. But in fact, it's probably not because what happens is lots of causes come together. So we have a concatenation, if you like, of causes that come together to produce a big out. But there's no big cause. It's just a fairly random bunch of stuff that's happened at the same time. But that, that stuff was there in the system before, right? So mm-hmm. if that makes sense, then we, we say, well, surely it makes sense to not just study when things go wrong, but just study how things go and how things go right. So if, if we accept that these causes of failure are there in the system, then we can find them in everyday work. And we can also find that very often they're also the causes of success. Right. So we, we, can't, we can't simply eliminate what we think are causes of failure, because they may also be the causes of success. And therefore, we've got to look deeper into it. Yes. And this notion that we don't, the gosh, what is it? It's, uh, it's David Woods. And, uh, um, and I'll drop, I'll drop notes in this on our blog post for this. Um, and, and Richard Cook, you know, sort of right. talk, talk about how much humans are actually responsible for compensating for complexity or shifts or minimal little failures in systems all the time. And in reality, it is those humans that we often blame for the problems that keep things working the vast majority of the time. So sort of uh, subsurface to us or sort of invisible, uh, invisible work in a way to us. 
Yeah, I mean, what Richard Cook, you know, would say about that is that the most complex sociotechnical systems are constantly in a degraded mode of operation. That means that something in that system, and usually lots of things, are not working as they were designed. So they're working outside the design envelope or the design intent. And that may be that the staffing level isn't out what it should be. Competency levels aren't, you know, refresher training has been cut this year or whatever. It may be the procedures, you know, there are too many of them, more than anyone ever imagined. There are temporary procedures, supplementary procedures, and so on and so on. Uh, the equipment may not be working right and, and all sorts of stuff. So, But we don't notice that. And the reason that we don't notice that our systems are constantly degraded is because people, like a kind of, you know, you remember those Stretch Armstrong things from mm -hmm. the 1980s when we grew up, right? Well, people are like those Stretch Armstrongs. They, they stretch to connect these disparate parts of the system that don't work right. So you know that in your system, this program doesn't work properly, right? And you have to keep a, a special eye on it. Or you know that this system falls down now and then, and you know when it's probably going to likely to fall down. And so you keep an eye out for that. You know you know that these two procedures don't work well together and you've got to be careful and so on. So you know where the traps are in the system. And as a human being, you like Stretch Armstrong, just kind of keep it, you add the resilience, you add that, that stretchiness and that, that rebound into the system mm -hmm. um, and help to um, stop problems from happening in the first place. So that comes back to this idea of resilience. And the source of resilience is primarily human. It's people that make the system work. It's the, I mean, it's the very irony of, you said that it's those people. It's the people at the sharp end of the stick, which is where right. things go wrong and where the blame often gets, gets placed, that are keeping that are still keeping that going the vast majority of the time. Um, because by being that close to the system, yeah, they know all of its intricacies and, and oddities. Um, and you know, you've seen these things in, in healthcare as well. I mean, there was a really crazy piece that came out a while back about you know hospital staff basically doing everything against all security policies and everything, just basically because their goal was to keep people alive. You know, so it's cases of people right. who had overlapping vertical stacks of stickies with like either steps of things to do outside of the, the system or password share, you know, like they all had one, I mean, it's just this incredible thing, but because their goal was, they were at the sharp end of stick of people not dying. Uh, That's right. People can see the purpose in a system, whereas the procedures can only look at a, a prescribed um, activity, right? So in the end, we have a big gap between two, at least two types of work. So one of them is workers imagined. It's what we think people do. And the other is workers done, which is what people actually do. Now, in that gap between workers imagined and workers done is all sorts of risk. And we have to pay a lot of attention to how things are actually done. So we need to look at how work is actually done, but being mindful of how far that's drifted from how we think it's done. Oh, that's a whole nother podcast, probably. Um, and, yeah. and, and, and your perspective on risk, which is another topic near and dear to a lot of folks in, in security. Um, so I'm going to, I want to leave it at that because hopefully that made at least a few people's brains work differently today. But I, I, you brought up, um, stretchy dude, <laughs> the last right. one, was, <laughs> yeah, stretch Armstrong. um, which is, a, uh, you're good at the segues, um, today for me, because uh, unbeknownst to you, uh, I'm going to give you the question I give everyone at the end of this podcast, which is it, every, everyday people have these amazing skills and abilities, um, as we've been talking about. And I, I have this um, deeply held belief that everyone has at least one secret superpower. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm curious if you think you could identify what your secret superpower is. Mm. Um, well, you know, when I grew up, I was uh, probably quite a sensitive, introverted, uh, you know, child. And um, my superpower growing up was reading a room. And that, oh. so that was basically reading the what was going on in and I grew up in a family business. And that's it, it's a big part of it, actually, because you've got a lot of you know, you've got a lot of work at home and then there's the, all the personal stuff at home and then you're in, you know, in and amongst the shops and warehouses that we used to have. And yeah, I grew up with this ability to read social situations, group situations, what was going on, who was friends with who in the room and just what was growing, going on. Now I do an awful lot of group work. And so it's, it's stood me in good stead, let's say. So, so I think that's probably what I recognized growing up. And that's been a source of, um, of angst as much as it has been a source of insight, I can tell you. I can, I can imagine that. Um, it's nice to see when, when someone parlays their uh, their own superpower into into good, like you have, though. So <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you so much um, for joining me today. I, like I mentioned throughout this, there's, gonna, there's some links to things that you and I discussed that I will put in our post around the podcast if people want to go and find them and dig into more. Um, and again, thank you so much for joining me today, Stephen. Thank you, Courtney. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at Courtney Nash and Stephen is at Stephen Shorrock. You can subscribe to the Security Podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. <laughs>